Chapter Eleven of Catherine Lauderdale, Volume One by Francis Marion Crawford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Eleven. Alexander Lauderdale Junior was a man of regular ways, as has been seen, and of sternly regular affections, so far as he could be said to have any at all. Most people were rather afraid of him. In the trust company which occupied his attention, he was the executive member, and it was generally admitted that it owed something of its exceptional importance to his superior powers of administration, his cast-iron probity, and his cold energy in enforcing regulations. The headquarters of the company were in a magnificent granite building on the second floor at the front, and Alexander Junior sat all day long in a spotless and speckless office behind a highly polished table and before highly polished bookcases upon which the light fell in the daytime through the most expensive and highly polished plate glass windows and on winter afternoons from glittering electric brackets and chandeliers. He himself was not less perfect and highly polished in appearance than his surroundings. He was like one of those beautiful models of machinery which work silently and accurately all day long, apparently for the mere satisfaction of feeling their own wheels and cranks go round, behind the show window of the shop where the patent is owned, producing nothing, indeed, save a keen delight in the soul of the admiring mechanician. He was perfect in his way. It was enough to catch one glimpse of him as he sat in his office, to be sure that the trust company could be trusted, that the widow's portion should yield her the small but regular interest which comforts the afflicted, and that the property of the squealing and still cradle-ridden orphan was silently rolling up, to be a joy to him when he should be old enough to squander it. The trust company was not a new institution. It had been founded in the dark ages of New York history, by just such men as Alexander Jr., and just such men had made it what it now was. Indeed, the primeval Lauderdale, whom Charlotte Slayback called Alexander the Great, had been connected with it before he died, his Scotch birth being counted to him for righteousness, though his speech was imputed to him for sin. Neither of his sons had, however, had anything to do with it, nor his son's sons, but his great-grandson, Alexander the Safe, was predestined from his childhood to be the very man wanted by the company, and when he was come to years of even greater discretion than he had shown as a small boy, which was saying much, he was formally installed behind the plate-glass and the very shiny furniture of the office he had occupied ever since. With the appearance of his name on the company's reports, the business increased, for in the public mind all Lauderdales were as one man, and that one man was Robert the Rich, who had never been connected with any speculation, and who was commonly said to own half New York. Acute persons will see that there must have been some exaggeration about the latter statement, but as a mere expression it did not lack force, and pleased the popular mind. It mattered little that New York should have enough halves to be distributed amongst a considerable number of very rich men, of whom precisely the same thing was said. 
Robert the Rich was a very rich man, and he must have his half like his fellow rich men. Alexander Junior had no more claim upon his uncle's fortune than Mrs. Ralston. His father was one of Robert's brothers, and hers had been the other. Nor was Robert the Rich in any way constrained to leave any money to any of his relations, nor to any one in particular in the whole wide world, seeing that he had made it himself, and was childless, and answerable to no man for his acts. But it was probable that he would divide a large part of it between his living brother, the philanthropist, and the daughter of his dead brother, Ralph, the soldier of the family who had been killed at Chancellorsville. Now, as it was certain that the philanthropist, for his part, if he had control of what came to him, would forthwith attempt to buy the Central Park as an airing ground for pauper idiots, or do something equally, though charitably outrageous, the chances were that his portion, if he got any, would be placed in trust, or that it would be paid him as income by his son, if the latter was selected to manage the fortune. This is what most people expected, and it was certainly what Alexander Junior hoped. It was natural too, and in a measure just. The male line of the Lauderdales was dying out, and Alexander Junior would be the last of them in the natural succession of mortality, being by far the youngest as he was by far the strongest. It would be proper that he should administer the estate until it was finally divided amongst the female heirs and their children. He was really and truly a man of spotless probity, in spite of the suspicion which almost inevitably attaches to people who seem too perfect to be human. On the surface these perfections of his were so hard that they amounted to defects. It is aggressive virtue that chastises what it loves, by its mere existence, but neither his probity nor his exterior mechanical superiority, so to say, was connected with the mainspring of his character. That lay much deeper, and he concealed it with as much skill as though to reveal its existence would have ruined him in fortune and reputation, though it would probably have affected neither the one nor the other. The only members of the family who suspected the truth were his daughter Charlotte and Robert the Rich. Charlotte, who was afraid of nothing, not even of certain things which she might have done better to respect, if not to fear, said openly in the family, and even to the face of her father, that she did not believe he was poor. Thereupon Alexander Junior usually administered a stern rebuke in his metallic voice, whereat Charlotte would smile and change the subject, as though she did not care to talk of it just then, but would return to it by and by. She had magnificent teeth and, when she chose, her smile could be almost as terribly electric as Alexander's own. As for Robert Lauderdale, he had more accurate knowledge, but not much. Like many eminently successful men, he had an unusual mastery of details, and an unfailing memory for those which interested him. He knew the exact figure of his nephew's salary from the trust company, and he was able to calculate with tolerable exactness, also, what the Lauderdales spent, what Mrs. Lauderdale earned, and how much the annual surplus must be. He knew also that Alexander Junior's mother, 
who had thoroughly understood her husband, the philanthropist, had left what she possessed to her only son, and only a legacy to her husband. Her property had been owned in New England. The executor had been a peculiarly taciturn New England lawyer, and Alexander had never said anything to anyone else concerning the inheritance. His mother had died after he had come of age, but before he had been married and there were no means whatever of ascertaining what he had received. The philanthropist and his son had continued to live together, as they still did, but the old gentleman had always left household matters and expenses in his wife's charge, and had never in the least understood, nor cared to understand, the details of daily life. He had his two rooms, he had enough to eat, and he spent nothing on himself, except for the large quantity of tobacco he consumed, and for his very modest toilet. As for the cigars, Alexander had brought him down, in the course of ten years, by very fine gradations, from the best Havanas which money could buy, to old Virginia cheroots, at ten cents for a package of five, a luxury which even the frugal inhabitant of Calabrian Mulberry Street would consider a permissible extravagance on Sundays. Alexander, who did not smoke, saw that the change had not had any ill effect upon his father's health, and silently triumphed. If the old gentleman's nerves had shown signs of weakness, Alexander had previously determined to retire up the scale of prices to the extent of one cent more for each cigar. In the matter of dress, the elder Alexander pleased himself, and in so doing pleased his son also, for he generally forgot to get a new coat until the old one was dropping to pieces, and he secretly bought his shoes of a little Italian shoemaker in the South Fifth Avenue, as has been already noticed, the said shoemaker being the unhappy father of one of the philanthropist's most favourite and unpromising idiots. But of old Mrs. Lauderdale's money nothing more was ever heard, nor of several thousand dollars yearly, which, according to old Robert's calculations, Alexander Jr. saved regularly out of his salary. Yet the youngest of the Lauderdale men was always poor, and his wife worked as hard as she could to earn something for her own little pleasures and luxuries. Robert the Rich had once been present when Alexander Jr. had borrowed five dollars of his wife. It had impressed him, and he had idly wondered whether the money had ever been returned, and whether Alexander did not manage in this way to extract a contribution from his wife's earnings, as a sort of peace-offering to the gold-gods, because she wasted what she got by such hard work, in mere amusement and hats, as Alexander cruelly put it. But Robert, who had a broader soul, thought she was quite right, since, next to true love, those were the things by which a woman could be made most happy. It is true that Robert the Rich had never been married. As a matter of fact, Alexander Lauderdale never returned the small sums he succeeded in borrowing from his wife from time to time, but he kept a rigidly accurate account of them, which he showed her occasionally, assuring her that she might draw on him for the money and that he credited her with five per cent interest so long as it was in his hands, which were of iron as she knew, and further, that it would be to her advantage to invest all the money she earned in the same way with him. 
A hundred dollars, he said, would double itself in fourteen years. And in time it would become a thousand, which would be a nice little sum for her. He had a set of expressions which he used in speaking of money, wherewith he irritated her exceedingly. More than once she asked him to give her a trifle out of what she had lent him, when she was in a hurry or really had nothing, but he invariably answered that he had nothing about him, as he always paid everything by cheque, which was true, and never spent but ten cents daily for his fare in the elevated road to and from his office. He lunched somewhere, she supposed, during the day, and would need money for that, but in this she was mistaken, for his strong constitution needed but two meals daily, breakfast at eight, and dinner at half-past seven. At one o'clock he drank a glass of water in his office, and in fine weather took a turn in Broad Street or Broadway. He sometimes, if hard-pressed by her, said that he would include what she wanted in the next cheque he drew for household expenses, and he examined the accounts himself every Saturday afternoon. But he always managed to be alone when he did this, and invariably forgot to make any allowance for the purpose of paying his just debts. Robert Lauderdale knew, therefore, that there must be a considerable sum of money somewhere, the property of Alexander Jr., unless the latter had privately squandered it. This, however, was a supposition which not even the most hopelessly moonstruck little boy in the philanthropist's pet asylum would have entertained for a moment. The rich man had watched his nephew narrowly from his boyhood to his middle age, and was a knower of men and a good judge of them, and he was quite sure that he was not mistaken. Moreover, he knew likewise Alexander's strict adherence to the letter of truth, for he had proven it many times, and Alexander had never said that he had no money. But he never failed to say that he was poor, which was a relative term. He would go so far as to say that he had no money for a particular object, clearly meaning that he would not spend anything in that direction, but he had never said that he had nothing. Now the great Robert was not the man to call a sum of several hundred thousands a nothing, because he had so much more himself. He knew the value of money as well as any man living. He used to say that to give was a matter of sentiment, but that to have was a matter of fact, probably meaning thereby that the relation between length of head and breadth of heart was indeterminate, but that although a man might not have fifty millions, if he had half a million he was well enough off to be able to give something to somebody if he chose. But Robert the Rich was fond of rather enigmatical sayings. He had seen the world from quite an exceptional point of view, and believed that he had a right to judge it accordingly. He had watched his nephew during more than thirty years, and one half of that period had sufficed to bring him to the conclusion that Alexander Jr. was a thoroughly upright, but a thoroughly miserly, person, and the remaining half of the time had so far confirmed this judgment as to make him own that the younger man was not only miserly, but in the very most extended sense an old-fashioned miser, in the midst of a new-fashioned civilization, and therefore an anachronism, and therefore also not a man to be treated like other men. Robert had long ago determined 
that Alexander should have some of the money to do with as he pleased. His sole idea would be to hoard it and pile it up to fabulous dimensions, and if anything happened to it, he would probably go mad, thought the great man. But the others were also to have some of it, more or less according to their characters, and it was interesting to speculate upon their probable actions when they should be very rich. None of them, Robert believed, were really poor, and certainly Alexander Jr. was not. If they had been in need, the old gentleman would have helped them with actual sums of money, but they were not. As for Mrs. Lauderdale and her daughters, they really had all that was necessary. Alexander did not starve them. He did not go so far as that, perhaps because in his social position it would have been found out. His wife was an excellent housekeeper, and old Robert liked the simplicity of the little dinners to which he occasionally came without warning, asking for a bite, as though he were a poor relation. He loved what was simple, and in general all things which could be loved for their own sake, and not for their value, and which were not beyond his rather limited ascetic appreciation. It was a very good thing, he thought, that Mrs. Lauderdale should do a little work and earn a little money. It was an interest and an occupation for her. It was fitting that people should be willing to do something to earn money for their charities, or even for their smaller luxuries, though it was very desirable that they should not feel obliged to work for their necessities. If everybody were in that position, he supposed that everyone would be far happier. And Mrs. Lauderdale had her beauty, too. Robert the Rich was fond of her in a fatherly way, and knowing what a good woman she was, he had determined to make her a compensation when she should lose her good looks. When her beauty departed, she should be made rich, and he would manage it in such a way that her husband should not be able to get hold of any of her wealth, to bury with what Robert was sure he had, in secret and profitable investment. Alexander Jr. should have none of it. As for his elder brother, the philanthropist, Robert Lauderdale had his own theories. He did not think that the old man's charities were by any means always wise ones, and he patronized others of his own, of which he said nothing. Robert thought that too much was done for the deserving poor, and too little for the undeserving poor and that the starving sinner might be just as hungry as the starving saint, a point of view not popular with the righteous, who covet the unjust man's sunshine for themselves, and accuse him unfairly of bringing about cloudy weather, though everyone knows that clouds, even the very blackest, are produced by natural evaporation. But it was improbable, as Robert knew, that his brother should outlive him, and he contributed liberally to the support and education of the idiots, and his brother was mentioned in the will, in connection with a large annuity which, however, he had little chance of surviving to enjoy. There were plenty of others to divide the vast inheritance when the time should come. There were Mrs. Lauderdale and her two daughters, and her baby grandson, Charlotte's little boy. And there was Catherine Ralston, and there was John, and then there were the two Brights and their mother, whose mother had been a Lauderdale, so that they were direct relations. And there were the Miners, the three old maid sisters, and little Frank Miner, who really seemed to be struggling hard to make a living by literature, 
not near connections these miners but certainly included in the tribe of the lauderdales on account of their uncle's marriage with the millionaire's first cousin whom he remembered as little cousin meg fifty years ago robert the rich always smiled a little sadly when he reached this point in the enumeration of the family and was glad that the miners were in his will the miners would really have been the poorest of the whole connection for their father had been successively a spendthrift bankrupt a drunkard and a lunatic which caused alexander junior to say severely that livingston minor had an unnatural thirst for emotions but a certain very small investment which frank minor had made out of the remnants of the estate had turned out wonderfully well minor had never known that old lauderdale had mentioned the investment to old beeman and that the two great men had found the time to make it roll over and over and grow into a little fortune at a rate which would have astonished persons ignorant of business after which they had been occupied with other things each in his own way and had thought nothing more about the matter so that the miners were comparatively comfortable and the three old maids stayed at home and took care of their extremely healthy brother instead of going out as governesses and when they were well stricken in old maidhood they had a queer little love story all to themselves which perhaps will be told some day by itself the rich man made few presents for he had few wants and did not understand them in others he was none the less on that account a generous man and would have given had he known what to give but those who expressed their wishes were apt to offend him by expressing them too clearly the relations all lived in good houses and had an abundance of bread and sufficient allowance of butter and john ralston was the only one in connection with whom he had heard mention of a tailor's bill john ralston was more in the old gentleman's mind than any one he knew what did the others all want jewels perhaps and horses and carriages and a lot of loose cash to throw out of the window that was the way he put it he had never kept a brougham himself until he was fifty years of age it was true that he had no womankind and was a strong man like all his tribe but then many of his acquaintances who might have kept a dozen horses said it was more trouble than it was worth and hired what they wanted his relations could do the same it was a mere curiosity on their part to experience the sensation of looking rich robert lauderdale knew the sensation very well and knew that it was quite worthless of course he thought they all knew that at his death they would be provided for even lazy jack as he mentally nicknamed ralston at least he supposed that they knew it they should have a fair share of the money in the end but he was conscious and acutely conscious that most of them wanted it and he had very little belief in the disinterested affection of any of them even the old philanthropist if he had been offered the chance by a playful destiny would have laid violent hands on it for all his charities to the exclusion of the whole family his son would have buried it in his own trust company and longed to have it for that purpose and for no other jack ralston wanted to squander it hamilton bright wanted to do banking with it and to out rothschild the rothschilds in the exchanges of the world crowdie 
whom Robert the Rich detested, wanted his wife to have it in order that he might build marble palaces with it on the shores of more or less mythic lakes. Catherine Ralston would have liked some of it, because she liked to be above all considerations of money, and her husband's death had made a great difference in her income. Mrs. Lauderdale wanted it, of course, and her ideal of happiness would be realised in having three or four princely establishments, in moving with the seasons from one to the other, and in always having her house full of guests. She was born in Kentucky, and she would be a superb hostess. Perhaps she should have a chance some day. Charlotte Slayback wanted as much as she could get, because her husband was rich and she had nothing, and she had good blood in her veins, but an abundance of evil pride in her heart. There was Catherine Lauderdale, about whom the great man was undecided. He liked her, and thought she understood him. But, of course, she wanted the money, too, in order to marry Lazy Jack, and wake up love's young dream with a jump, as he expressed it familiarly. She should not have it for that purpose, at all events. It would be much better that she should marry Hamilton Bright, who was a sensible fellow. Had not Ralston been offered two chances, at both of which he had pitiably failed? He had no idea of doing anything more for the boy at present. If he ever got any of the money, it should be from his mother. The two Catherines were out and out the best of the tribe. He had a great mind to tear up his old will and divide the whole fortune between Catherine Ralston and Catherine Lauderdale. No doubt there would be a dispute about the will in any case. He might just as well follow his inclinations if he could not prevent fighting. And then, when he reached that point, he was suddenly checked by a consideration which does not present itself to ordinary men. As he leaned back in his leathern writing chair, while his knotted fingers played with the cork penholder he used, his great head slowly bowed itself, and he sat long in deep thought. It was all very well for him to play at being just a capricious old uncle with some money to leave, as he pleased, to this one or that one, as old uncles did in story-books, making everybody happy in the end. That was all very well. He had his little likes and dislikes, his attachments and his detestations, and he had a right to have them, as smaller men had. A little here and a little there would, of course, give pleasure and might even make happiness. But how much would it need to make them all rich compared with their present position? Robert Lauderdale did not laugh as he answered the question to himself. One year's income alone, divided amongst them, would give each a fortune. The income of two years would give them wealth, and the capital would remain, the vast possession which, in a few years, he must lay down for ever, which at any moment might be masterless, for he was an old man, over seventy years of age. If he had a son, it would be different. Things would follow their natural course for good or evil, and he would not himself be to blame for what happened. But he had no one, and the thing he must leave to someone was great power in its most serviceable form, money. He had been face to face with the problem for years and had not solved it. It is a great one in America at the present day, and Robert Lauderdale knew it. He was well aware that he and a score of others, some richer, some less rich than himself, 
were execrated by a certain proportion of the community and pointed out as the disturbers of the equal distribution of wealth he was made personally sure of the fact by hundreds of letters anonymous and signed warning him of the approaching destruction of himself and his property people who did not even know that he was a bachelor threatened to kidnap his children and keep them from him until he should give up his wealth he was threatened entreated admonished preached at and held up to ridicule by every species of fanatic which the age produces he was not afraid of any of them he did not have himself guarded by detectives in plain clothes and athletes in fashionable coats when he chose to walk in the streets and he did not yield to the entreaties of women who wrote to him from texas that they should be perfectly happy if he would send them grand pianos to the addresses they gave he was discriminating he was just according to his light and he tried to do good while he took no notice of those who raved and abused him but he knew that there was a reason for the storm and was much more keenly alive to the difficulties of the situation than any of his anonymous correspondents he had in his own hands and at his absolute disposal the wealth which under a proper administration would perpetually supply between seven and eight thousand families with the necessaries of life he had made that calculation one day not idly but in the endeavor to realize what could really be done with so much money he was not a visionary philanthropist like his brother though he helped him in many of his schemes he was not a saint though he was a good man as men go he had not the smallest intention of devoting a gigantic fortune exclusively to the bettering of mankind for he was human but he felt that in his lonely wealth he was in a measure under an obligation to all humanity that he had created for himself a responsibility greater than one man could bear and that he and others like him had raised a question and proposed a problem which had not before been dreamt of in the history of the world he an individual with no especial gifts besides his keen judgment in a certain class of affairs with nothing but his wealth to distinguish him from any other individual possessed the equivalent of a sum of money which would have seemed very large in the treasury of a great nation or which would have been considered sufficient as a reserve wherewith to enter upon a great war and there were others in an exactly similar position he knew several of them he could count half a dozen men who together with himself could upset the finances of the world if they chose it needed no tortuous reasoning and but little vanity to show him that he and they did not stand towards mankind as other men stood and the thought brought with it the certainty that there was a right course for him to pursue in the disposal of his money if he could but see it in the right light this was the man whom all the lauderdale tribe called uncle robert and to whom catherine intended to appeal as soon as she had been secretly married to john ralston and from whom she felt sure of obtaining what she meant to ask he was capable of surprising her you have a good house good food good clothes and so has your husband what right have you catherine lauderdale or mrs john ralston to claim more than any member of each of the seven or eight thousand families whom i could support would get in the distribution 
That was the answer she might receive, in the form of a rather unanswerable question. End of chapter 11